chilling new original docuseries on Paramount Plus. Why did he kill his family? The answer lies across the ocean in a woman named Sylvie. She's a can model. Where desire leads to deception. I ended up spending twelve and fifteen thousand dollars a day. It was addictive. I can't get you out. And obsession leads to murder. Who did this to your family? You can't really maintain a fantasy forever. Control Alt Desire, now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. You're listening to Family Feud, part of the Paris Style Podcast family. They might not be brother and sister, but they sure do fight like they are. Here's your hosts, Keely Yor and Shotgun Spratling. Welcome to another edition of the Family Feud Podcast. I'm your host, Keely Orr, here with Shotgun Spratling and cousin of the pod, Chris Trevino. Well done, Shotgun. <laughs> Thank you for introing the pod. Uh, a family feud secret is that I hate introing and I do very bad intros, so Shotgun's just taking over today. We have a fun <laughs> show for you guys. Uh, we're going to be talking about the latest about coronavirus and the college football world. We'll be talking about the tight end news that broke this week with USC, the CIF's decision to delay fall sports. USC got a new commit. And of course, we'll be discussing a new series we have, ranking USC's most important players for the 2020 season. We'll talk about how controversial it was between us three trying to narrow down the list. It was spicy, so we'll, we'll probably have some debate and some heated discussions at the end of the pod, so stay tuned for that. But like I said... Chris is back on the pod with Shotgun. Guys, how are you doing today? I'm happy to be back on the most desperate podcast in America because I've been on, what, like six consecutive times or something like that. So happy to be here. You haven't made it to six to begin with, uh, so you need to work on your counting. And we felt bad for you. So we you know, we didn't want you to go into that, that uh, quarantine depression, so that's why we kept inviting you back. Yeah, yeah, it's really sorry a, to let it let it out now, but it's a pity. This is actually invite. for your own good. Yeah, you can't be in quarantine depression if you started in quarantine depression. <laughs> it's one way to put it. Uh, from the looks of your quarantine beard, I can see that that's what is happening for you, Chris. Beard, ponytail, it's just growing on both ends here. It's just. Uh, as a reminder, you guys subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, and Megaphone. You can also email us your questions or submissions to our podcast at familyfeudpod at gmail.com. Like I said, guys, there are things moving in the world of college football. Right around our last podcast is when the Pac-12 came out and announced a conference-only schedule. Now, today on Thursday of recording, John Wilner uh, released a report that the Pac-12 is planning to start games around September 18th and have a very flexible schedule that will go all the way into December. So guys, what are your thoughts? I know last time we discussed what's more likely pro sports has come back. We're starting to see exhibition games, scrimmages. It looks kind of like they're doing it so far right now on the pro side of things. Of course, this is amateur college football, so it's different, but what are your thoughts on the fact that we might be able to have college football? Because like I said, the last time we talked about this, we went to three possible scenarios. Chris, you were, Pretty positive about a Pac-12 only schedule. I was pretty negative and shocked, and you were kind of the medium. Has your thoughts changed at all? And and what do you think about Wilner's report? Yeah, I mean, I was right. I win. I win the podcast. I win the last podcast. I win the show. Um, <laughs> you can't win if nothing has happened. I just, I just declared that I won. No, um, no, sir. Obviously, you know it's great that we're possibly moving towards having college football. I know, like you said, you were negative and how. 
We might not even have a season. We, that still could very much, very much happen. Uh, but yeah, it's just a slow process, taking it day by day. For all we know, next week it could all be blown up in some form or fashion. It could be no football. But you know, I'm I'm, I'm still very hopeful that we will have some form of the season, even if it's going to be pushed back to the spring. That's still an option. Uh, the Pac-12 is working on you know a 10-game schedule and a nine-game schedule. Just a little flexibility there. So you know, as long as everyone's safe, I'm on board with it. Yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see if things play out. Uh, it obviously you want to have this the season. You want to have it in the fall if possible. They've already made the decision to go to conference only, which is an interesting decision. You cut down on travel. You you know you stay in your own region. You don't have to go because you know a lot of several teams had uh, games that were in other parts of the country. So th- this trims those things down. You uh, you trim down the factors when it comes to testing. You know, if you're playing out of conference, now you should have a consistency across the board of all the schools should have, you know, the same type of testing and have the same requirements. So you, you eliminate some things like that w- with that uh, by making it the conference only schedule. But will it play out? That's still a big question. And I, I think that there's a positive sense because you're seeing all these other sports play. But again, football is a different beast. You know, there's so many more players on these teams. There's so it's, you know, just the fact that it is a contact sport where you're in someone else's face every single play. uh, I think that's going to be different. So I I think the big thing will still be the testing. And that's a big, you know, kind of talking point right now. You're you're seeing where, you know, there's conversations about should the pro leagues be able to kind of you know they're skipping the line basically and being able to to get their tests done before, um, you know, for your average citizen is getting their results back. So there's a big discussion about that. The NFL is also having, you know, the negotiations back and forth between the NFL and the NFL Players Association about how frequently they will test. Um, so I, I think that that's the big thing is you. Just, it's still. To me, it's still on the outer reaches uh, of actually happening just because the testing, you're going to have to have the testing done you know, before every game. Are they going to be able to have the funding for that? And are they going to be able to you know, just be able to get the testing and get the results back? Um, are they going to be able to kind of skip the line like some of the others where you're getting some backups and some backlogs in a lot of states right now with the amount of testing that is going on because you've had the influx of cases in the last few weeks? And to me, it's like the Pac-12 can do whatever they want, but at at some point it comes down to local and state authorities who may just say, no, California, you can't do sports. You know, if you saw New Mexico, I think their governor told their three uh, colleges and universities, like, I advise you not to do college football. And we could very see, we could very well see Gavin Newsom do that as well. The the Pac-12 schedule seemed hopeful almost too hopeful because the one of the keys in Wilner's report was that their plan is based on things getting better in the next two months and to me that's very optimistic but I guess you have to plan for everything so it seems like this is a good plan but will California be involved at this point I don't think we know and hey the 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 schedule and you know what uh, Wilner reported and the schedule should be released by the end of the week he he reported um, and if his details are correct that it's in the middle of September is when they would start the season. That's two months away, but you have to have training camp before that. You can't just go straight into games. You can't, you know, you can't do a week of practice and suddenly you're playing games. So 
it, it's based on things have to improve in a lot of areas, but that improvement has to be over the next three weeks or so, so that you can have at least a month uh, leading up of training camp or practices and stuff to get uh, guys in, in shape and conditioning. Now you see in USC is back finally doing some workouts and stuff and doing conditioning um, as a team. You're seeing that for the, for the first time. So there are some baby steps that are happening still hopeful, but I'm still not that optimistic yet. Uh, you know, I, I think that we're seeing some baby steps and that's, you know, leading towards, you know, maybe it happening, but I, I'm still very cautious to, to think that there's going to be a season um, happening in the fall right now. And back to my point about authorities kind of having the final say, USC had phase three of their voluntary workout start on July 13th. And that same day was when LA County basically said, we're closing all indoor gyms and facilities. And there still is not a directive for high schools or for colleges as to what you can do workout wise. So USC took LA County's direction as, okay, that applies to us. Like they defaulted to that direction. And so they kind of scrambled on the day that phase three started and was like, okay, I guess we'll take all our, our indoor workouts outside. And you've seen on the social media accounts, they've shown like how they've fluctuated. They put up little tents and they like have little workout stations on like Howard Jones field. Um, but it just goes to show that it seemed like they were blindsided a little bit by that decision by LA County. And so it just goes to show that you can plan for everything. And yet there still can be something coming from authorities that you have to now jump another hurdle. So it's, it seems like it's still fluctuating each day almost. Yeah. I, I think you should give, you know, the schools a lot of credit though, for trying to be flexible and trying to find a way, like said, I've said this several times on various uh, shows and podcasts, they are going to try to get the season in whatever it takes because of the financial impact that the football season has on the rest of the academic, de I mean, athletic department. So they're going to do everything they can there uh, and, you know, give them credit for, for trying to be flexible and, and, you know, making moves that they can. And that's why you have to plan for this. You can't say, well, you know what, it's probably not going to get better. Uh, so what's the use in planning for it? And then suddenly things do get better and, you know, you're left go trying to scramble to, to put things together. So you have to have the plans in place. They're doing that, so give them credit for, for doing what they can. And by going conference only, I think that limits uh, the variables there and gives you a better opportunity. Um, you know, it'll be interesting if the the schedule does play out and you have a 10-game schedule, what's the one team that USC misses? Uh, you know, if you, if you really want to, you go to a full 11-game schedule and it's a true round robin, and then you have, uh, you know, a true champion come out of the league. But you're going to miss one team. Who's the team you're going to miss? Those are going to be the interesting things when the schedule is released. Uh, but will it be all for naught? That's a big question, uh, just because we still don't know what will be going on in a month, not to, uh, much less to two months from now, because as we've seen throughout this quarantine and lockdown and just – Things can change very rapidly, and especially week to week, month to month. One idea that has been floated around um, just on my Twitter timeline, I think Pete Thamel reported that one Power 5 coach suggested, why don't colleges wait until the NFL gets things off the ground? You can't model really MLB or basketball because, like you said, Shotgun, football is just a completely different animal. So what do you think about waiting and seeing what the NFL does? That way you have kind of a guinea pig go and a guinea pig that is paid to do it and then transfer it down to the amateurs. Yeah, I mean, that looks great on paper, and I see the, the logic behind that. 
watch something that you're very similar to go through forward and see how adapt to that. But I think what you just said that they're paid to do is the big difference. Um, those are athletes. There's billions and billions of dollars being put into that NFL machine to make sure it comes out right. And while there is a ton of money uh, with the college football, you know, the athletes don't see that money and all the resources are very widely spread across the country. I think that's something we mentioned last time, like a differences between like a New Mexico and a USC and Alabama and a Memphis. So there's just too many, there's just much more variables between program to program, region to region. Whereas the NFL, you only have to worry about 32 teams, 32 franchises and whatnot. So I, I do like that idea, but I just think there's a little bit more uh, unknown with the college ranks compared to, you know, like a business like the NFL. I agree with you, but also I think it would be a great idea if you could let the NFL go first. Because while you do have some other variables, you can, you know, try to eliminate as many as you can by watching what the NFL does and, you know, basing off of, of their results. You know, and then you kind of you, you tinker with it from there and try to, you know, make the differences and, and figure those things out um, as you go. But if you're waiting around, I, I, like I said, there's just so much dependence on the football season for the athletic department's budgets uh, that, you know, it's hard to, to, to do that and, you know, kind of uh, reason with that because who knows what happens in the spring, you know, if, you know the flu season comes, do things pop back up? Is there a second wave? There's all these other variables with the virus itself, um, you know, that you know, waiting around isn't the best idea in that regard. If you can try to figure out things now and get it done, then you do it. Um, but it would be much smarter and logical to wait and see someone else do it. You know, if you're you're in an Indiana Jones movie, you know, let someone else go first and see if there's you know some deadly traps or something first. But uh, that's not the way the real world works, and especially when there's money on the line. I mean, that goes back to the whole point of morality i guess is it right to have college students and college students who are predominantly black go and play in a pandemic when grown adults aren't going to their jobs i mean not to be the full debbie downer on this but is it ridiculous to have college athletes play in a pandemic when we don't know the long-term effects i just have to say this every family feud pod because if i don't and we look back on this i'll feel bad about it because it's still it feels kind of weird to me if i'm being honest just because we're in a pandemic and we still don't know the long-term effects. Is it right to even push for athletes to come back and play? No, that's a, that's a great point. That's a great question to ask. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, it feels, does kind of, it does feel kind of wrong just to be pushing these kids along, literally kids along to go and, you know, entertain people and during something that's like a once in a lifetime kind of thing. And again, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to look like. And, just jumping back to Shotgun's point about what happens to the other athletes of other sports while they wait for football. Are they just going to be waiting around too? Because they can't really model themselves after the NFL. Like, what does lacrosse look like or what does rowing look like or swimming? You can't model it after them. So it's just another question of what about all these other sports that, you know, aren't uh, making millions of dollars like football? Yeah, and you've seen some other conferences, you've seen some high school federations move certain sports and leave some other sports, you know, their schedule, uh, you know, the season schedule in place. So I, I think that there's still a lot of question marks and a lot of things that have to be figured out. And football is the big question just because it is the largest uh, roster size for any college. 
Um, so, you know, you're putting so many more potential student athletes at risk and, you know, uh, putting them out there at the, the front of this because it's the big one that everyone's paying attention to. And it's not like you're going to bring along, all right, let's do a trial run with the rowing group. You know, you're not going to bring the crew in. You're not going to bring in lacrosse. You're not going to bring in your women's volleyball and say, let's do a trial run and see how that works to see if that then translates for uh, college football as well. So there's a lot of question marks again, and you know, everyone's paying attention to college football, but the athletic directors, the presidents, they're having to worry about all the student athletes. And a reminder, as I said, last podcast, and I've said a couple other times that it's not just about the football players that are taking the field, the 18 to 22 year olds. It's about the entire community that is at the college, whether it's the professors, whether it's the janitors, the coaches that are older on these teams, everyone that goes home over a break and you know sees their family. Are you putting all of those people at risk as well? It's not just about, well, they're, he- they're 18 and 22 year olds. Even if they get it, they'll probably be healthy. Maybe they will. We don't know about the long-term effects, but at least in the short term, they'll be healthy. No, you got to look at everyone that's involved in this. It's a college community, not just a college football team. So the interesting thing going forward is on Friday, which is probably when this podcast is coming out, the NCAA Board of Governors is going to vote on whether or not to cancel the NCAA's sponsored championships, um, which include playoffs for the FCS division. Um, Basically, I feel like if they vote to cancel fall championships, wouldn't that force uh, people's hands going forward where if you don't have a – obviously it's not going to be the college football playoff because that's not controlled by – uh, the NCAA, but if the NCAA votes no, doesn't that kind of signal where things are going? Is it kind of one of those dominoes like we we saw with the Ivy League? Sure, it's like how how can we have this if we're not allowed to have? How can we do X if we can't have Y? So I think that's good. That's a good point uh, that you make. That hey, if that comes down, then that's another big piece of the puzzle where it's like, all right. Got to, got to alter, got to adapt, got to, got to move it back or do whatever. So they can either vote on that on Friday or kick it to the next meeting, which is August fourth. So just something to keep in mind. Uh, things could be moving rapidly. Speaking of important decisions, this time at the high school football level, the CIF and some other states decided to basically punt the football season. Uh, I know CIF punted all fall sports to the spring. It's going to have a ripple effect in recruiting, but also just for seniors, the class of 2021. Do they now play their senior season in the spring, or do they just forgo their season entirely and uh, become an early enrollee? It's an interesting thing. We've already heard from uh, two USC commits. Zamarian Gordon and Julian Simon both said that they are going to forgo their senior season and continue to be an early enrollee. That's something that both of them had already planned prior to uh, the decision. Uh, Julian Simon in Washington and Isamarian in California. First off, guys, what were your thoughts about the CIF's decision on Monday and what it could p- potentially do for recruiting? Yeah, I mean, you saw that one coming. I, it felt inevitable. You know, we've been talking about, you know, what colleges do with the pandemic and how they work around getting or pushing their getting their schedule going in the fall or maybe delaying it or pushing it to spring. Those questions are even they're a hundredfold when it comes to the high school level in terms of what school has this resource between like uh, city league schools or the Trinity league and public schools or private school. It's just a whole other can of worms. And, you know, it, it just makes sense. 
and it's much more safer and controllable if you just move it all the way back to January into the spring. So, you know, I, I saw that. I know people who cover high school sports in California, like high school writers, and they all felt like this is what's going to happen. And obviously, we've already seen uh, what's happening with the recruiting scene. It's putting a lot of decisions on these uh, these seniors, which is, you know, a tough decision to make. You know, senior year, that's something that that's the thing you you love to, to end your career with is a great senior year. Go out on a bit on a bang or whatever your final run in high school. So it's tough that a lot of these kids aren't going to have that senior year, but I see a lot of them deciding to cut that, not wait till the spring, especially the ones who have the opportunity to jump to college now. Yeah, it's it's in it seems like an obvious choice for particularly the CIF with, you know, the the mandates that have been handed down from the governor and from some of the local um, uh, government officials. Seems like an obvious choice. When you think about it, you go, how are these teams going to get everyone tested before games? Or are you just going into it blind? I think that kind of lends back to the national discussion about sending school, sending kids back to school in the fall. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of discussion there about it. For CIF, with the uh, you know with the government officials in California, what they you know what their decisions have been recently, it makes sense to push it back uh, because you're not going to be able to get the testing that you would like to get for all the students. I don't think uh, so. You know, I think it does create this ripple effect where and, and a tough decision, like you said, Chris. Do you go out with your friends and play in that last senior year, kind of ride off, and you know for. For some of the high-end players, you know, they kind of describe high school as, you know, the last time when it's just about having fun. It's not, you know, it's not about being a business because once you get to college and it becomes a little bit more of a business and how much time and effort you're putting into, you know, your your football studies as well as your, your academic studies. So it's a tough decision for these kids. You know, the ones that are making decisions and saying, hey, I'm going to skip my senior season is because they're looking at that depth chart and saying, you know, if I get there early and I get an extra semester and I get to, you know, get a spring uh, practice in, if there's even spring practices, you know, depending on how compressed the, the fall schedule is, and then it becomes a whole nother can of worms if the college season gets pushed back and then you go, well, are they going to uh, allow early enrollees at all because of the scholarship limits? Is the NCAA going to expand on the scholarship numbers? I think inevitably uh, what's going to happen is that the college football season will get them pushed back. And then all these decisions about whether to skip their senior season or not, are not even going to matter because they're just going to say, well, we don't have room. You just stay in high school for now, play your senior season out. So, you know, we'll have all this discussion about whether or not it's important. And then inevitably it'll just be like, ah, never mind. You got to go to high school regardless. Remember when you told everybody that you weren't playing your senior season? Now you are, you're back, you're back in, you're back with the boys. So you don't think the NCAA would make some type of like adjustment a bigger roster adjustment versus schools just being like, no, stay there. They could, but I think it, I think that college football coaches would actually push for them not to, just so they don't have that, to make it easier on the college coaches maybe, and say, uh, I think some coaches would say that. Like, let's just make it easier instead of us trying to tell, you know, some seniors, hey, we need you to just go ahead and, you know, leave high school, high school seniors we don't have room for you now. You know, how much is that? How many extra roster spaces are there? How many early enrollees do you have? You know, the, the reason why it matters is because normally when you have seniors graduating, they finish up in the fall semester and that opens up roster spots going into the spring. Well, if you don't finish up that semester uh, and those kids are staying around to, to go and play in the spring, then it changes everything as far as those numbers go. 
So I, I think you're going to have to, um, you're going to have some coaches that are pushed for it. You have other coaches that'll say, I want the kids on campus as, as soon as I can, so I can work with them. So there'll be some, some back and forth push there. An interesting wrinkle in all this too, is that like for those who skip their senior season, like we talked to early enrollees, they say it's a hard jump between high school and college. You're essentially going from junior year in high school to D1 college football. That's a huge jump. As a college coach, do you want them to actually stay so you don't have to like maybe spend more time helping them develop and you and they get more time in their senior season to develop more so that you can focus on your current roster and then deal with them when they come in the fall? It's an interesting predicament. Yeah, just talking to kids who have talk with the USC coaches about doing enrollment, it seems like the coaches, USC coaches, really want them on campus as soon as possible. So I don't think, obviously you want reps, especially if like a quarterback, you want those reps in high school moving forward. Like that's a big question mark for Jake Garcia and Miller Moss, who we'll probably talk about in a little bit. But reps are very important at the high school level. But even, but I think more importantly, coaches just want them on campus sooner the better so they can develop them, get them used to college. Um, so I would think overall co- coaches just want them on campus sooner, regardless if they're making a little bit bigger of a jump than, you know, a normal senior would. I think it depends on the prospect. I think you should, it should be a individual uh, by basis. It's kind of like you look at it like a minor league system. You know, you, you don't, you have your number one draft pick. You don't immediately send them to the major leagues. Uh, you, you have to work them up the, the ranks of, of the minor league system and, and try to, you know, get them the reps against, you know, a, a 92 mile an hour slider versus, you know, how often do they see in that they're high sc- coming out of high school or even have been in college. So I think that if you're looking at the USC commits, you have, you have Max Gibbs, you have Cy, you have Mason Murphy. Mason Murphy's been playing uh, football for a couple of years now. I, I think you want to get these guys reps. I think the reps are way more important than having them on, on, campus and going in practice and not getting those true game reps i think the same thing for the quarterbacks quarterbacks is always about risk but you look at these two quarterbacks miller moss and jake garcia have both got a ton of reps uh, you know the last few years you would like to see jake garcia play a full year he hasn't had the opportunity to do that because of the transfers and different things so i think there's some players that you want to see that other players other positions maybe not as important. You look at a running back or something, they always talk about the running back and you know how many carries they have on their body as a whole. Um, and that's why a lot of running backs will leave college early to go ahead and get to the NFL because you can only take so many hits, basically. So I, I think it's different, I think, for players that aren't you know uh, locked into certain positions. Then you may want them to take more reps. You know, uh, Zamarian Gordon's a guy who's floated back and forth between different positions. Maybe you tell him, say, hey, think it would be better if you get more reps at this spot where we think you're going to play in our defense or is it better to to get those guys you know on campus and get those practice reps what's more important that's kind of the debate you start to have um i i think with when you're looking at it and you know if you have experienced players a guy like jt daniels made that jump and that was a really tough jump and obviously he didn't have a lot of success his freshman year and that's a five-star guy I think when you start looking at some of these guys that are more projects, that are three-star guys, you want them to get as many reps as possible, and that gives you an extra year before you get them. So you know, you look at a guy looking back at a you know a prospect, a, um, a project guy like Wole Batiku, um, who you know had all the raw talents, 
but didn't have the game reps. You know, he'd come over, he'd only played football for a couple of years. You would love to have been able to stall him for an extra year in high school, get some more reps, get some more reps, so that you're more ready when you get to college because there are certain prospects that you look at and you go, he may not be that great in college, but when he gets to the NBA or he gets to the NFL, he's got a ton of potential. We just don't know that it's going to happen at the college level. And I think there's some players that are like that, uh, where you want them to develop, you also want them to gain extra weight. A lot of times, you know, they haven't been lifting. This person hasn't lifted weights except for you know for the last year. Well, if they get another year of that in high school before they get to campus, now they're more ready to contribute. Now they can be- become more of a contributor in their four to five years that they're on the college campus, and you're not spending that year trying to develop them yourself. You're letting someone else do it. And again, that goes back to the re- resources at the high school level, like you talked about, Chris, with the with the coronavirus stuff. But also, like, when you're looking at a city section weight room versus a Trinity League weight room and, you know, who's coaching them up and those extra resources, there's a lot of different things I think would go into it. So I think it's more of a case-by-case basis that you're going to be looking at rather than just an overarching thing going, well, we want everyone to get here versus, no, we want to keep everybody back. If you're uncommitted at this point, what does this do for you? Because obviously, like, the spring evaluation period is important. You didn't get that. You're not going to have a fall senior season. Someone like Corey Foreman, he's fine. You don't have to really worry about him. But for other uncommitted prospects, what do you really do at this point? Are you, is everyone kind of, is it a mad dash to get your spot before it kind of all gets crazy? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. I spoke with Anthony Beavers uh, earlier this week when the CIF ruling came down just because I wanted to get his perspective on it and I asked them like oh have you been talking to other guys or your friends or other you know kids you playing high school football he was like yeah and I was surprised he said a lot of kids were excited about it and I I kind of piqued my interest he said it was because guys who don't really have like the offers right now it gives them more time you know train until the spring it it it, it extends their period where they can get an offer uh is what he kind of said, and he also said it also puts more pressure on guys who do have offers to kind of live up to that in the spring. Cause I guess this whole extended break you have until the spring is going to, it's going to tell who's going to be working, who's not going to be working. Um, it's just more downtime. So you're going to see who's going to step up and make the most of their downtime as opposed to guys who maybe have offers and don't really need to worry about it as much, or maybe, you know, my, my, my rest on their laurels a little bit going into the spring. I think it's interesting that, that Beaver said that. I wouldn't necessarily think that, but I think that you are seeing more commitments because guys are trying to reserve their spot. With so much unknown, you know, there will be a guy like Corey Foreman. Hey, they'll they'll find place a place for him. They'll make sure there's a scholarship. I think that's why you're seeing more guys. You know, especially if you're a three or four star guy and you you have an offer you really like, you jump on it right now because it's not the time to play games when. In recruiting, a lot of times that can be the case. You kind of feel it out and see, and, well, I think I'll get some better offers. Right now, it's it's more like I better jump on this right now because I, there's so many unknowns going forward. Go ahead and lock my place in and, and be there with that. And then if I can improve my stock in the spring or whatever, we'll reassess then. But I would much rather have locked up a spot now in a class and, and feel comfortable with it than you know waiting around and then you know not having a spot at all. I think Beavers actually tweeted something. Keely can maybe back me up on this, but he tweeted like, 
go ahead and commit now or something like that. Yeah, he tweeted, like, commit while you can. So I think he anticipated that it was just going to start this commit spree. And I I think a lot of the seven-on-seven coaches and the high school coaches have kind of probably been giving the same advice to players. It's like, hey, you know, there's so many unknowns. Try to lock in your spot. Make sure you can continue to do the work and make sure that, you know, you don't get bypassed by someone else. But – if you have the opportunity, go ahead and try to try to lock it up if you can now. And so, I mean, there's there's tons of question marks out there. We only talked about basically the California ruling and them pushing, but looking at the USC commits, you got some kids from Texas. As of right now, Texas has said that you know they're basically kind of pushing things back, you know, a few weeks to a month based on the division, the size of the schools. But their plan is to continue to play in the uh, in the fall. Um, so. If those players are able to get their seasons done, how does that change? I mean, USC has, I think, three commits from Texas right now. So you're looking at every different, you know, state and the different, uh, the variations of what's being allowed and what's not. And, you know, when are these kids going to be able to arrive on campus? Those type of things. There's a lot of a lot of question marks and a lot of uh, different variables still flying around right now. I think Florida is still on track to start on time as well, which is Florida going to Florida, you know. Georgia has basically moved back their schedule by a month. You know, the game, they still plan to have, a, you know, the regular schedule, full schedule, but they're, they're moving the games back, I believe, about a month. So they're still on track to play. And those are, you know, we bring up Florida and Georgia and Texas because those are your natural recruiting hotbeds. Along with California, they're the four states that produce the most talent. So, you know, it's different across the country. And, you know, with Washington, you know, you look at it's different in – on the eastern side of the state versus the western side of the state. You know, there's just there's so many variables kind of going on right now. So, uh, you know, if you can, you lock up your spot if you're a high school prospect. But if you're USC looking at it, you, you, you know, you try to see who you can evaluate and, you know, what you can do from a distance uh, as it is. Moving on to commitment news, USC picked up a new commit on Sunday. Prophet Brown, 5'10", 180, interestingly enough, listed as a running back, but was recruited to USC as a cornerback. I think Greg Biggins had an interesting little behind the scenes about who was recruiting him as a running back versus cornerback and how that kind of showed how close they were to Prophet. Guys, what were your initial reactions? I know he was supposed to commit on Monday and then was like, surprise, I'm going on Sunday. You know, what can you do? What were your thoughts on this commitment? It it, it made me feel something again. Because <laughs> what does that mean? Chris? Because because hear me out, hear me out. We're where, so where used did you get to, this feeling? Where in your body did you get this feeling? Like my soul, my soul. <laughs> I just felt something in, in my jaded recruiting football soul. Because most of the time, I would say like 95% of the time, we kind of know when someone's going to pop on a commitment or we kind of get a, we know kind of where it's leaning. And I think a lot of us were really caught off guard on Sunday by a commitment. So it made you feel something just like, oh, I was, I was stunned by something. I, I'm not sitting around waiting for a commitment that's 35 minutes past the initial commitment date. It just came out. But it was a little bit of surprise just because he was a heavy Oklahoma lean for most of the time. And then out of nowhere in the few days leading up to his commitment on Sunday, USC kind of surged ahead with some big crystal balls from some of our national analysts, including Brandon Huffman, who was the lead expert. So props to Dante, uh, the Dante Williams effect uh, for staying in there. 
making a strong push in the end with a nice little close um, to seal this one up. I think the P would be a little bit more excited if he was a running back because that is a huge position of need with this class Um, because he is a dynamic runner, good speed, um, but just a great overall athlete and a a really good pickup at the cornerback spot. Yeah, don't necessarily count him out from playing running back at the college level. That could still be a possibility. You know, it depends on how USC's, the rest of USC's class, they're recruiting him as a cornerback, yes. But position switches happen in college. Quit shaking your head at me, Chris. Quit shaking your head at me. You just embody the peristyle. You're just taken over by the spirit, and he's like, don't count him out as a running back. <laughs> so it was an exorcism moment? Yeah, you just got, look, you don't even know where you are right now. Where are you? You're just, you're just taking over. You just, you just did a, a P, a, you just regurgitated P stuff. Running I'm not back. saying that it's going to happen immediately when he gets on campus, but with the way their running back recruiting has been going, they might have to put him at running back because they don't have any running backs right now. You know, Mike Jinks has been recruiting uh, for, I think, 18 months now, something like that, 20 months, and he's got in no commit. I mean, Brandon Campbell's is the only commit that he's got. Yes, Chris? I'm just saying one, the one. I'm just saying the one. Technically, he was in on the offensive lineman, Casey Collier, I believe. He was assisted on that. I'm not saying he hasn't got any commits. I'm saying we ha- he right. hasn't got any running back commits. So, you know, uh, Keenan and Kristen did sign underneath Mike Jinks, but he, you know, he was already committed before that. So USC just hasn't got a ton of traction with running backs. They need two in this class. They needed one last class. They didn't get one. So now they got to have uh, the two this year. So we'll see how that, how that plays out. But if they don't do better with running backs and considering this is a guy in California, it is a possibility that he could still end up there. Is he the type of running back they're looking for? That that's kind of the question uh, with him. You know, he kind of fits the mold for for that offense essentially as a running back uh, being recruited there. So that was the surprising part is that USC's been recruiting him as a cornerback and that they were able to pull that off when, like you said, it was kind of an unknown there. And we had him listed in the database as a running back. Recently switched that over. And part of that is because there were more teams that were recruiting him as a cornerback than when you kind of realized initially. So um, I think it's interesting and he's a guy to watch because, you know, where does he end up and, you know, what does he do this as a senior? If he has a senior season, you know, if he puts up a ton of numbers and he looks really good at running back, it could still happen. Chris, don't, don't just, don't put it out. that It can't happen. It could still happen. If I'm Dante Williams, I'm like, I got this signee. Go get your own running back. He's a cornerback. I'm keeping him. Don't don't touch my profit, Brown. Don't touch him. He's maybe mine. he wants to. Maybe he wants to grab somebody else. You know, Dante's doing very well on the recruiting trail, and maybe uh, another four or five star guy shows up, and he decides that he wants to, you know, grab a, another cornerback as well. Three interceptions last year, all returned for touchdowns. That's one of the most impressive stats I've seen in a minute. That's just, that's awesome. That's almost as good as Clark Phillips doing it in one game. Mr. Pick six. Mr. Pick six. That is true, Mr. Pick six. Going back to USC's cornerback commits, I think it's interesting when you look at the kids that are committed in that secondary, you got a lot of athletes in that group. Not just athletes as in, hey, they're athletic, but athletes as in they play multiple positions. They play on the offensive side. There's question marks about where they're going to play because they're so dynamic. And I think that's one of the things that's kind of been missing from USC, you haven't seen a lot of positions. Where is he going to end up? Where's Marquise Lee? Is he going to play safety? Is he going to play receiver? Where's Juju Smith going to play? Where does Adoree Jackson play? Those are 
high profile guys, those are the type of athletes you need. They're difference makers. That's what's been missing in the return game for USC. They haven't had anybody since Adoree Jackson that's, you know, just a unique and elite athlete that you, you just want to get the ball in their hands. You don't you don't care how you do it. You just want to get the ball in their hands. That's what maybe you're seeing from guys like Kalen Bullock, plays wide receiver for USC. I mean, with uh, John Muir. Um, yeah, Prophet Brown, who we're talking about in this, Jalen Smith, who could play offense as well. I, I think that that tells you a lot about what Dante is looking for in that secondary uh, as the passing game, defensive passing game coordinator, going after those, you know, really uh, high twitch guys that can, can move around and can make plays. And also guys that even though they're defenders, they get the ball in their hand, things special can happen. You haven't seen a lot of those special type plays on the defensive side where you make a guy miss, you return it for, for six the other way, and it completely can ch- change a game the last few years. Moving on from roster additions to roster deletions, subtractions. Subtractions is the right one. I knew if I tossed it up to you, Shotgun, you'd finish it for me. Daniel Martabebe announced this week that he has put his name in the NCAA transfer portal. We have confirmed that fact. Guys, was that surprising to you at all that he was coming back to USC and then now he's gone? Yes and no. Just because, as we've been familiar with the whole Daniel Mortebebe saga, you knew anything could happen. And you've heard transfer portal rumors since like two years ago or whatever. So, but it, I, I did, I was a little surprised just having gone through the process of leaving the team, then coming back to the team and then just going to the portal anyway. So I was a little bit uh, surprised by that. I can't wait till his story is made into a lifetime movie about his time at USC with all this stuff going on. <laughs> Why is it going to be on lifetime? Cause it's that dramatic. Cause you know, because it's that dramatic drama, um, baby. It, it is uh, surprising because of the comments that we had heard from John David Baker, um, you know, saying that, that he'd been talking to him, that he was back in the mix, those type things. And it sounded like he was going to be a part of things in the spring. Um, so eventually in the spring, of course, we only saw one practice that never happened. So those were the things that were surprising there. But when you look at the entire history uh, of his time at USC, then it's not surprising. The fact that his brother was already gone, you know, with him coming to USC, having to stay out of here, you know, the, the injuries and then trying to get back from the injuries and the, the hurdles that he had to try to overcome to, to get that and get back on the field. It's, it's heartbreaking almost because this is a kid that you really want to root for. Everyone on the team talks about how great of a guy he is. He's always wonderful to talk to uh, when you try to interview him and everything. But he just couldn't get healthy with USC. And, you know, you would love to see him go on and have, you know, great success in his final year because he has he has NFL potential. You know, if he's healthy and before he was, was injured, him and Sam Darnold made a, a unique uh, connection over the middle of the field. And it was a, a tight end weapon. Imagine that. That's something that USC has not had since he got injured. Um, Wait, so, what you did know, you say? What did you say? A tight end weapon? Sorry, weapon. I'm familiar with that. Weapon. Not... Yeah, it's, it's huh. strange. It is possible. I mean, Drake London, does that count? Mm. Put in the tight end spot, the split out tight end in air quotes. Um, yeah, so it, it's unfortunate to, to see him not get to finish out. But, you know, he does finish with two degrees at USC. He came to USC to, to get his degree. That was one of the things he and his brother both wanted to do. They both do, did. 
Um, and I think that if he finds a, a good landing spot, then he can have a really successful season and then potentially be an NFL player because if the athleticism is returned and he's healthy, you know, he can do some different things over the middle of the field that a lot of tight ends can't. I've heard multiple reasons for why he chose to transfer and I haven't confirmed any of them yet. So I don't really want to say anything right now, but it was a little surprising, especially since we saw him in that one and only spring practice. Um, I remember when I first broke the news of him coming back in January, I think I said this disclaimer of like, even though I broke this story, I still don't believe it until like he's on the field <laughs> during game day. And I'm glad I said that because it's just the case of, of what's happened with him and USC. But like you said, shotgun, I think you could tell by everyone's tweets uh, former pl- former teammates and current teammates about Daniel Monterbebe. He's a great guy. We wish him nothing but the best and wherever he ends up going. It's disappointing that there's no Monterbebe's left on the USC roster because such a wonderful family. Talking to them, their mother is wonderful. You know, they're, they were they came from Georgia. Their, their parents moved out uh, with them as well. And it became like a little safe haven for all the the players from the South. You know, Bayless Jones, you, you look at Pi Young, Jamel Cook, those those type players all would go to the Amato Bebe's house for, for meals and stuff and, and, you know, would hang out with the family to get a little taste of home. Um, so they did a lot of um, off-field work as well with the community and stuff. So it, on that side of things, it's disappointing to, to not get to see them finish their career at USC because – not only are, are they great people, they also can contribute on the field, as we've seen. Josh Martabebe, you know, tied the the Illinois school record where, for touchdowns was one shy, maybe. Had a big year for them, even though he missed a couple games late in the season. He has a potential to be an NFL prospect as well, uh, and is a uh, all Big Ten uh, preseason pick uh, for some publications. So, good luck to to the whole family. Uh, they were they were great to to be around, and just unfortunate that it didn't work out for them at USC. Yeah, agreed. And on a on-the-field perspective, part of me thought that there could be hope for USC's tight end position with Daniel Monterbebe just because he's such a unique receiving threat. Now I'm curious what happens going forward because would Graham Harrell, does Graham Harrell already know what he's going to get out of a Josh Follow or Eric Cromwell hook? Do you still continue with the Drake London pseudo tight end experiment? What do you, what do you think it looks like going forward? I mean, that was already well-stocked position, so I think they're going to be okay in that regard. You still have a dynamic re- jumbo receiver at this point in Josh Fallow. And, you know, I think we've talked about this in that Baker um, is a Harrell guy. He knows what Harrell likes, so he's going to do his best to get that position ready to be a contributing force in Graham Harrell's offense. So I, I'm still sort of hopeful for the position i think there's a lot of talent and there's a lot of potential there um and you saw what it could do with drake london so i don't think losing di hurts that much just because there's lots of guys you can fill that role but i think he's like the ideal type of player that they would want in that position you know he's a guy that you can flex out you can block enough that you can keep him in and and i think that that's the problem with the guys that are on the roster now that don't feel at least the older guys that don't feel like they have that complete package. They feel like they have the blocker with Chrome and hook, or they have the receiver with follow, but they don't feel like they have both at the same time. And, and now a motor baby wasn't a, you know, a upper echelon blocker by any means, but I think that he would fit that mold a lot better. And maybe a couple of years, you know, being older, you know, improved his blocking potentially too. Um, so that you can keep that player on the field, 
and you don't have to make the sub and allow the defense to make the sub. Because they, they've talked about how they would like to go fast. They don't want to have to make that switch and bring in a Drake London or you know bring in a receiver uh, and take out the tight end so they can flex them out. They would like to have a guy in there that can do both so that you keep the defense on the field, you can change your formation, but not have to, to change personnel and be able to go a little bit faster too. So I think it hurts in that fact. And I, I think that they had a guy coming in that was going to be similar to that in Jack Erie, but uh, the latest news out is that Jack Erie is not going to be with the program either. He hasn't been in any of the volunteer workouts as of yet, and we've been told he's not expected to be with the team in the fall. So that tells you he's not going to be on the roster uh, this sometimes happens with players. You sign, they don't make it to fall camp. I mean, the 2019 class, USC had three players not make it to fall camp that, that were signees, Jalen Watson, Trey Davis, and uh, Tallini Levi. So uh, USC's recruiting class, if Jack Erie did not sign, would have been ranked even worse down to number 63 overall instead of 55. So their worst recruiting class ever looks like it's going to get even worse and Jack Erie is a dynamic guy that fits exactly what they were trying to do, it seemed like. You know, it, it seemed like such a good fit because in high school he played some some flex. He would flex out. He also was in the backfield. They used him as a fullback at, uh, at Murrieta Valley. So, you know, he could play that H-back spot really well, I thought. And I thought he was going to fit really well into this offense and do those things and not be – you know, that he was going to be the, the dynamic guy that could stay on the field and do different things. And I feel like without him, without Amar Bebe, I think you're right back to where you were last year. You need Hook to become a better receiver or you need Follow to become a, a better blocker or you need one of those young guys, Jude Wolf or Ethan Ray, to step up and, and be ready to contribute and, and take over some spots. And maybe that's what happens with Jude Wolf. Maybe he starts taking some reps away from the older guys. Yeah, I just – Got a call from Jude. He said, put some respect on his name. So <laughs> I think Jude is the guy that's going to surprise people this year just because he is the better blend of blocking of Cromenhoek and receiving of Fallow. So that's kind of my breakout guy for that position now that, you know, DI has moved on to the transfer portal, a guy who can really uh, step up with that opportunity because he's back in the rotation as a number, probably number three guy with a chance to move up further. Um, and I guess, yeah, to touch on Yeri, who kind of reminded me a little bit of Jude Wolf, just because people thought he was going to be an offensive tackle. Obviously, when you have the last name Yeri, as big as he is, I know Greg was high on him. Greg Biggins was high on him as possibly becoming an offensive tackle, which kind of made people excited given his bloodline. Uh, but his senior year, he really proved that he could be a dynamic passing weapon. Um, so credit to him. And, you know, that's, that's a talented guy you're not going to have next year. So. That's unfortunate. Yeah, it's interesting to see where he lands because, you know, he was looking, you know, he decommitted from USC, was looking at UCLA, Washington, a couple other Pac-12 schools. Does USC end up seeing another legacy player playing another school in the Pac-12 uh, in the future, which is something that we've seen more frequently recently where USC used to, you know, dominate with anybody that was connected with the USC program. They haven't done that so much on the recruiting trail in recent years. And it'll just be interesting to see how that's going to, affect recruiting this cycle because you have Lake McCree assuming that Chrome and Hook and Fowler are both gone next year you only have two tight ends plus one coming in in McCree with the ACL so maybe that's why they kept some of those offers going out you know with Findone and then Michael Trigg so maybe we'll see two tight ends this class with the with the latest developments at the position 
Yeah, it's definitely an interesting position to watch, uh, you know, with John David Baker, his first year taking over as a tight ends, and how exactly they use the position. You know, they want, they've talked about how they want to keep a tight end on the field. That's their preferred alignment is to have three receivers with a tight end, H back, wherever you want to put him. But they, that that's their preference in Graham Harrell's offense, him and John David Baker, rather than having four wide receivers. Cause people saw the success when you had Drake London on the field last year. Um, and, and people are going to be looking to say, why don't we just go to four wide receivers all the time? I think the USC fans are going to see that they would rather have that tight end on there. Um, they just didn't have the exact personnel last year and the running back situation they had that they decided to change things up. But the preferred personnel is a um, is a 11 formation. So now it's time for our final segment that could get a little spicy. We're going to talk about our new series that we've debuted on uscfootball.com. Who are the most important players for the 2020 season for USC? Uh, right now we're going to go through 30 through 21 because that's what we have up so far on the site. If you missed any of it, you can go back and look at our reasoning. But just to run down what we have so far, number 30 is Ben Griffiths. Number 29 is Brew McCoy. 28 is Chase McGrath. 27 is Kanai Mauga. 26, Drake London. 25, Isaac Taylor-Stewart. 24, Gary Bryant Jr. 23, Justin Dietrich. 22, Chase Williams, and 21, Brandon Peely. So some controversy there, some picks uh, that certain people had to fight for. It took us like four hours to just agree on 30 people in order. I still have some issues with it, but we're rolling with it. It's basically my worst uh, traits in one series because I'm so indecisive and can talk myself in and out of everything. So... These guys have kind of seen how it's like pulling my teeth to do this. But, guys, what have been your thoughts on this series? Uh, well, I, I came up with the idea uh, with this series, and I, I was a little bit of a Nick Fury in bringing together a group of extraordinary people to put this list together. Um, I've liked that all the discussions that people have had on some of the stories, and I know we're going to get into one big debate here between a couple of wide receivers with shotgun because that was a very heated topic in this battle. But overall, I enjoyed talking with you guys about these guys, and I'm, I'm enjoying seeing the list come out and seeing kind of reactions to it, even though Keeley is still freaking out. You know, it's done. <laughs> you just got to accept it. I got to accept, accept it. it. You brought together some extraordinary people and Keeley. Hey! Oh. Okay. okay. <laughs> hey. Hey. <laughs> Hey, uh-huh, yeah, hey. hey. Uh, yeah it, it was interesting uh, that you know we all compiled our top 30 list separately. So then when we actually debated it, rather than just averaging out everyone's list and making that the list, it took a long time to debate it because we went back and forth on several guys. Um, you know, we, we took our time with this. So some of you may look at it and go, how in the hell is this guy here? Well, th- there was a, a long discussion that got to that point. So... Uh, and we, and then after we averaged our, or after we made our initial list, some guys, you know, were lost for the season, you know, were injured, moved on from the program. So, you know, there was some changes that went along with it. So that, it, you know, made the debate even more so. And then obviously Keely just kind of floating back and forth and never making up her mind on anything made it even that much more difficult <laughs> to try to come to a consensus on the, on the picks. I won't debate you on that. The interesting thing, though, <laughs> is that we had so many debates that I started making a running list of topics that we could talk about because part of we 
partially wanted to make our entire debate a podcast, but it wasn't, it was a little too casual to be released to the world. But one of the topics that came up a lot was, what do you define as most important? And we kind of, what did we decide on this? I, what I, yes, it was a very heated topic, especially for Keely, who just did not want to accept <laughs> anything we threw at her. But it, it was kind of based in two major things. There's a little bit other stuff that goes into it. It's written in the like intro to all of these, but basically it's like expected playing time, i.e. like a starter, like a Keaton Slovis, he's going to be on the field a lot for USC versus highest potential ceiling of someone, like someone playing up to their ability would go a long way. Like a certain offensive lineman plays to all Pac-12 caliber, USC is going to be a pretty good position. They're that much better for it. So those were kind of the two main things that had us butting heads. Um, I know Shotgun can speak to the potential thing a little bit more because that was his brainchild. Yeah, when I think of most important, I think of if this guy plays well, then USC is going to have their most success. And so I looked at that as a big contributing factor. I looked at the depth chart as a big contributing factor because they're the most important because of the scarcity. You know, you look at the quarterback position in particular, you only have two scholarship guys and we've seen guys get hurt. So at that position, so that makes them that much more important. You know, keeping Keaton Slovis healthy is very, very important to this team. That's why I had some offensive linemen a little bit higher than other people did. Um, So, you know, I, I think that, some of it is looking at who's behind them. Hey, if they have a great replacement that's right behind them, if you, you're looking at you know a position like the wide receivers where there was better depth when we started the list, there was better depth uh, prior to Kyle Ford being injured. Um, but also you, you look at you know a position like the cornerbacks where you have multiple guys fighting for the starting position, then I devalued those guys a little bit because, hey, if Elijah Griffin or Isaac Taylor Stewart – you know, doesn't play well, there's somebody else that can replace them. Or if they get injured, they're not as important because there's another very valuable replacement in that same spot. So those are some of the things I looked at. Positional scarcity was one of them. Depth chart was one of them. How important they are to this new defense was something we looked at as well. So there were a lot of factors that went into it, which is part of the reason why there was such a debate over over, uh, some of the positions. Um, We did all agree on a couple of positions, and then it went all to shit from there. <laughs> Pretty much. See, we're, we're talking so vague that I want to put some specifics in people's minds. One of the notes I made was that Shotgun both talks himself out and into Chase McGrath at number 28. Shotgun, would you please explain what happened? So I actually had Chase McGrath much higher on the list initially. You know, I had him at uh, number 23 overall on my initial list. And as we started discussing it and talking about it, you know, I started looking at the scarcity. I mean, he's going to be valuable to the team because you need a good kicker, especially if you have some close games. USC under Clay Helton has had a lot of close games, even when they shouldn't be close sometimes. So um, they just haven't been able to blow out opponents. So I think kickers, you know, are, are going to play a more important uh, factor there. But then you start looking at it and you go, well, Michael Brown has filled in and done a nice job for Chase McGrath in the past when Chase McGrath has been injured. But now you also add Parker Lewis to the mix. So I started debating with myself about how valuable Chase McGrath actually is compared to some other players on the team. And so I thought initially that he should be higher, but then after reconsidering and as we were debating it, I talked myself out of him being higher. 
I moved him up a little bit, then I moved him back down again. Well, you took him out entirely, and then we were trying to figure out 28, 29, and 30, and you didn't have Chase at all in there, whereas Chris and I had Chase in, in that range. And then you were like, no, I don't think so, because blah, blah, blah. Well, I see how this happens. And then he was back in and we decided on him at 28. Yeah, he doesn't change his opinion a lot unless it's his own opinion. He's debating himself. <laughs> <laughs> and, all, and all that was in the span of literally like 20 seconds. Yeah. It, it, was... wasn't, it wasn't this long out thing. It was like literally 20 seconds of watching him debate himself. Yeah. Was I was, when I was a kid, I was one of those kids that they could say you could argue with the wall. You know, sure. I would have an opinion on something and I'd be ready to argue about it. You know, so sometimes I had I argue with the wall and just listen to that echo coming back and had to change my opinion. Shotgun, this is not news to any of us, so thank you. <laughs> I think it's okay, also let's, what go, Chris. I was just gonna say let's let's just get to it. Let's get to the band aid we've all been waiting for. Shotgun defending his wide receiver, his controversial wide receiver thing, probably the most controversial thing on this uh, on the list uh, easily in this first ten of people, but. Gary Bryant over Drake London, which goes back to our question, can a first-year player be on the list? All right, let's go back to this again. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> You've given me the floor for uh, a, a long rant here on this. I had Gary Bryant initially at 22. Uh, we ended up having him at 24. So I think I won out on this argument when we were actually doing this debate. Um, and Drake London ended up 26. I had him a couple of spots below that. Here's my thought process on Gary Bryant over Drake London. First off, I have almost all the receivers. I had all of them um, ranked a little bit lower. I think USC had some great players there, especially when you still had Kyle Ford. I think Brew McCoy is going to have a big year. I had him, I think, higher than a, a couple other people. Um, so I think that the receivers, though, because of the great depth you had there as far as the talent at the top end, when you have a Tyler Vaughn, you have Amon Ross, St. Brown, you have Drake London, that one player is not going to define that position. One player is not going to change how the offense It's not The offense is centered also on one player. It's not like if you lose Marquise Lee in a year when you're throwing the ball to him 17 times in a game. That's not the same. I think even though you're losing Michael Pittman Jr. and you're replacing him with some guys, I think that it's the the offense is more about you know running the offense rather than setting up particular mismatches and trying to target defenders. I think it's more about finding the the loose grass out there and and you know making the most of it. Whoever that receiver is out there that's doing it at the time, are receivers gonna some receivers gonna do better? Yes, but I had Gary Bryant above Drake London for two reasons. One, on the Gary Bryant side, he is he brings something to the offense that no other receiver has. He brings elite speed. He brings the, the ability to take the top off the defense, which can create more intermediate underneath routes as well. Even if you aren't, using, even if you aren't throwing the ball to him, he can push back the defense and do some different things. Something we thought they would use with Bayless Jones, but it never happened. So they don't have that on the roster outside of Gary Bryant. He brings speed that none of the other receivers have. It's a unique feature for him. He also is on special teams. So he has multiple uh, position variability there. He's going to bring a lot of value on special teams that you're not going to get from another receiver. 
you know, Tyler Vaughn's might be, could be considered, and Amon Ross St. Brown could be considered punt returners, but I think Gary Bryant's going to pass over those guys. I think he's going to be the guy back there. He has the wiggle. He can break guys, plus he has the speed. He has speed and acceleration, the two things you really look for on, from a returner. I think he's going to do some special things there, especially with Sean Snyder. Now, looking back at what Sean Snyder has done with freshmen, you got guys like Tyler Lockett was an All-American as a freshman. Uh, their returner after Tyler Lockett was a freshman All-American. He's, he had the All-Big 12 uh, returner of the year or special teams player of the year like four years in a row, and he does it with freshmen. He's not afraid to play freshmen. I think Gary Bryant's going to be another one of those guys going to have a huge impact on special teams. The other side, Drake London. Yes, but I would argue that now that Daniel Bebe is gone, it's he's even more important. You can't make that argument now. I can and I will. <laughs> he's already been on the list and published like a week and a half ago. So. Yeah, but I'm still going to argue. <laughs> you can't this. suddenly argue, well, he should be higher now because one player is left. Yeah, but he's still Yes, it, if, it was, if it was now and you say, hey, they have two tight ends that would probably that are no longer on the roster, that probably bumped Drake London up a little bit give him a little bit more value because maybe they use him as that option again. But there's question marks about where he plays. Are you going to use him in the slot again? Are you going to push him outside? Is he now in a a position battle with a brew McCoy at the time of my rankings, a Kyle Ford as well. If he's playing outside, I'm on Ross St. Brown. Like it, it, where is he at there? He's not guaranteed that he's going to be a starting receiver this year. I, I think that's the big question mark. His rise last year coincided with USC losing all their running backs and deciding to go four wide. Like we just talked about with the tight end discussion, they would rather have three receivers on the field and one tight end. So we don't know that he's going to be starting. If Can he beat out Brew McCoy at the other spot where Michael Pittman was? He's not beating out Amon Ross St. Brown or Tyler Vaughn for their spots. So where exactly does he line up? He's now in a position battle. He's not guaranteed a starting spot, so therefore he's dropped down lower to me. But this goes to our argument about whether or not you can rank someone who hasn't played. Because you're putting a lot of faith in Gary Bryant being able to transition well to the next level. And do that from multiple positions. Yeah, I don't have a problem. Have you seen (laughs) Gary Bryant play? Did you see him in the one practice? He looked dynamic. I'm just saying. Over someone who has proven that he can play. I think that Gary Bryant Jr. is an elite returner. An elite returner with a great special teams coach can be special things. The the whole discussion we just had about you know not having the that athlete as a returner in the past with an Adoree Jackson or a guy like that, I think that Gary Bryant Jr. brings that back. I think he has wiggle back there so he can make a guy miss, but he can accelerate and then put on the burners and be gone. And with the blocking schemes of Sean Snyder and the fact that he's had multiple, multiple, multiple returners be all Americans. Like, how is that not that that combination is going to be terrific for USC. And I think that that's why he's higher on the list for me. I will say having to write out Drake London. I do see your point <laughs> before having to write it out. I was very like Drake London over Gary Bryan, but I, I now kind of see it more having to really sit down and think about it. <laughs> No, Shotgun laid it out really, really well when we were debating, and that's the reason why he got us to do that. I will say the initial uh, caveat that I had is that it was Gary Bryant, Drake London, like a 1A, 1B scenario, but then somehow he finagled 
someone in between them and separated them. So <laughs> I don't know how that happened. It's worth noting that it was the end of our four-hour discussion. I think at some point I was just waving the white flag of like, sure, shotgun, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Never surrender. Oh my gosh. No, I, I think that, that both of them have a role. And I think, again, I think Drake London is a special talent and, and can be used. But the fact that it's not guaranteed that he's going to be lined up, and you're not going to use him in the same position necessarily. Um, I, have, I have some question marks there. Um, so because of that, that's why I had him a little bit lower. Whereas I think the, the returner role is something USC has not had in their arsenal recently at an elite level. So I, I think Gary Bryant can bring that. And you see... You routinely see what guys like a DeAnthony Thomas or a, a Dory Jackson, how they change games. And that's something I think Gary Bryant Jr. can be a, a legit game changer for USC. Drake London had some really big catches for USC. You know, the one over the middle to Colorado stands out maybe more than the others. Um, but I, I don't think he's necessarily a game changer compared to some of the other receivers. I think you also have really good receivers uh, that he's going to be competing with in Brew McCoy, uh, Kyle Ford at the time of our rankings initially, um, and, and you know Tyler Vaughn's on the outside as well. Chris, that was a lot of shotgun. What were your thoughts? Anything flagged for you on the, the 30 through 21? Um, outside of what we just talked about, the big thing that what I found looking over the list and specifically because I was writing this person was Isaac Taylor Stewart. Um, I know initially he probably wasn't going to be on this list just with the knee surgery. We didn't really know what was going to happen with him. But now he's been posting stuff about his knee, and he looks pretty good. I mean, I think a lot of us would agree that he looks healthy. I know Helton said he was going to play this fall. But I, I think you could make the argument that he's a little bit higher. Um, probably not out of this initial top ten, but... I think he's going to be a valuable, either way, he's going to be a valuable starter. If he beats out, you know, Chris Steele or OG for one of those spots, that's going to be an interesting battle with Dante Williams. Or at the very worst, he's going to be one of the best backup in, backups in the Pac-12 at cornerback. And again, maybe Trotter Leno gets a little creative with the guy with his body type, six foot two, 205. Um, but again, we're just going to have to wait and see what he really looks like with the knee up close when you're doing, you know, training on campus uh and see if he's if he's lost a little bit of a speed you know because knee injuries are a little bit tricky um but i was just thinking writing him that he could very easily be a little bit higher on this list yeah he's an interesting you know candidate on this list initially i this was before we had heard that he was going to be back i i thought the knee injury and kind of the way he looked after that holiday bowl that it wasn't going to be good news and that you know he may not be ready for the season at all or you know, be how much he would be able to contribute. So I didn't even have him on my initial list because of those question marks and concern. But when we started debating it, obviously he he had we found out a little bit more, and you know we moved him up uh, some spots there. But yeah, I think when you listen to Dante Williams talk about Isaac Taylor Stewart, that tells you a lot. Uh, you know, he's he's had really good things to say about Chris Steele and Elijah Griffin as well, who's going to be there. But he talks about Isaac Taylor Stewart kind of like he's a unicorn out there. And he is physically, he is a unicorn. You know, he has, you know, the the legit size that you want in an NFL cornerback at six two. He has the physicality there, and he has speed to burn. He's one of the fastest guys on the team. Uh, you just don't see that from that size of cornerback. He has to clean some things up technique wise, and you know, Dante Williams, the way he talks about him and the relationship he has with Dante Williams. If Dante Williams can bring out the best in him. You know, the best of Isaac Taylor Stewart 
could vault him if you got the best of Isaac Taylor Stewart with his physical abilities, he could be one of the top, one of the top five most important players for USC this season and the you know the couple seasons to go forward. He is that elite as far as the athleticism. You just got to get you know the the raw talent to to play on the field and, and get the most out of him. If he's coached up right and Dante Williams does that, you know, you can see some special things from Isaac Taylor Stewart. So he's a very interesting one on this list for sure. Yeah, highest potential. Isaac Taylor Stewart, top 10 pick. That's consistently what I hear. That guy plays his, his, his abilities, top 10 pick. Easy, move on. Next guy, who do you want to talk about? <laughs> and we're not talking about top 10 pick on this list. We're yeah. talking about top 10 NFL draft picks. Mm-hmm. And Chris, you mentioned how you, writing it, thought he should be higher. We actually have a nifty little poll option for everyone who reads each article. The P actually agreed with you, Forty. 5.83% of people voted that his ranking was too low. So there you go. Keely, what stood out to you about you know the, the first 10 guys that we dropped on this list? Anyone that that uh, caught your eye either while writing or you know during our debates that you thought either should be higher or lower or you know you were kind of questioning Chris and I now that you've re-looked at this list? Besides what I've already mentioned, I just finished writing Justin Dietich and – I originally ranked him higher, and we argued over this because, spoiler alert, I don't think Andrew Voorhees is going to be good to go in fall. It's just a hunch that I have, and also speaking around a little bit. And so when you take Andrew Voorhees out of the equation, you really don't have a lot to work with. And so Justin Dietrich then becomes that that much more important. But our list, and then everyone's going to get a hint of how I am in these conversations. Then that goes into most important because of course, Andrew Voorhees is more important then. But then if you don't have Andrew Voorhees, it's Justin Dietrich more important. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Like it's this whole like mind warp. So I thought Justin Dietrich could be higher. I ranked him higher, but I got vetoed on that one. Yeah. I thought one of the interesting things, one of the things that was brought up uh, recently on the message boards was about players that are backups. You know, Chase Williams is on this list. Justin Dietrich is on the list. Gary Bryant Jr. could be a backup at receiver. Isaac Taylor Stewart, you know, Kanai Malga, is he a starter? Is he a backup? So there's question marks about some of the, the backups because there were some backups that were listed over guys that, that may be starters. Um, and I think you have to look at the guys that are in front of them. And Chase Williams was one of the guys that I, I think I pushed for a little bit higher than, than the rest of the group. And this was a discussion on the message board is – He's not a starter and he hasn't, you know, been an All-American or anything in the times when he's been on the field. So why do you list him above some other guys? Well, I think when you look at Chase Williams, he's backing up two safety spots where guys have been injury prone throughout their careers. So do you say, well, you know, is he more important than Drake London? You know, that that's kind of becomes a conversation that you have. Is he more important than Isaiah Taylor Stewart? Where Chase Williams has had to play every year because of injuries. Because of the guys he's backing up, you look at their injury history, you think he might be more important than some other guys because he may be forced into playing where, where, where a guy like Justin Dietrich, will he get on the field You know, as a backup to Brett Nealon? Does he get moved to guard? There's some question marks there. So you know, the injury history of guys on this list, but also guys in front of them on the depth chart, uh, if weighed into our, our uh, debates and, and the factored into where we ended up ranking them. And the hard part, too, is that we didn't have any questions answered, obviously, through spring. So, Because that's something where I would have mm. called on spring knowledge to write about Justin Dietrich. Because you could kind of see the tendency between, okay, did did 
uh, Tim Drevno prefer Liam Jimmins if there's an open guard spot rather than uh, Justin Needed, say if Andrew Voorhees is healthy. You know, it, it's it's things where you can't really pull on that knowledge and then you're going off of 2019 fall and we're a long ways away from that. So that, I think, also hindered the list as well. I mean, we could be a year and a half away from that as the season gets pushed to spring. <laughs> Which is crazy, so yeah. I mean, it, it, just like you just talked about, but one of the things we wanted to see in the spring was the defense. Where's everybody lined up at? Uh, you know, what's the depth chart look like? How are the guys kind of taking two things? And that's something we'll get to probably a little bit more in the next podcast but, uh, because we do have some defenders coming up on the list um, that, that were debated back and forth. But it, it was hard without the spring with one practice. You know, what do you take away from the one practice? I take away that Gary Bryant's, you know, <laughs> super shifty. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Getting one more word in for your boy, GB. There you go. Well, guys, any final thoughts before we wrap up this podcast? I did have a couple take it or leave it, if anyone is interested. I'm just going to give you four. I'm going to give you my four short ones. Talano Hufunga's lettuce, his hairstyle, his new, his flow. Leave it. Is that bad? Whoa. I'm not one for flow. I'm taking it. I think I'm always for flow, especially my hair is out of control right now. If you come to USC with short hair, I will always prefer the short hair versus flow. Uh, how do you feel about Port Augustine? Okay, Troy uh, Polamalu. I mean, come on. He started at USC with, with shaved head, and he's he, known for the lettuce. He's the exception to the, the rule, shotgun. Okay, hard split there. Uh, preseason award list. We've been getting a lot. It's it's that time of the year, especially during a pandemic. It's it's a little weird uh, to be dropping these, so to be taking or leaving them. Uh, take it on a normal year just for Chris's quota of stories <laughs> he has to write every year, uh, every month. Uh, but leave it in a pandemic. It's just, it is really weird. I agree with Shawnington. Okay. Uh, Mike Tyson fighting an exhibition match at 45, <laughs> 54. Take it. take it. Take it. Take it. Okay. Okay. And the last one, as reporters living in a bubble, would you sign up to live in a bubble like the NBA for like two and a half months? Would you leave everything behind? Would you leave it? Would you take it? What would you do? I think I would take it. With, yeah, without mitigating factors, uh, take it, definitely. You'd I'd get rather the, be like, reporting. <laughs> yeah, you get the exclusive, like, tasty deets, and I'm all about them. So I would definitely take it. Plus, this the whole discussion about that has brought, been brought up on social media, like that sports reporters don't want sports. is like, what? What are you talking about? Yeah. Not only ridiculous. is our livelihood on the line with it, but uh, we kind of like these things called sports. <laughs> That's why we got into this business. It's yep. not like you, you don't go into a newspaper and they're like, you know what? We're going to stick you on the sports beat. You're covering the Lakers. Oh, shuck. I wanted to be covering courts. I want to be going to city hall meetings. No, it's, it's called the, the. All the city reporters are getting mad at shotgun. Yep. <laughs> Please direct your hate. Hey, mail some people like shotgun. it, but <laughs> we're not those people. We want to be covering sports. That's why we did it. Yep. All right, those are my four. Keely said, "Keep it quick." So I gave you four. That's another addition to take it or leave it. Well done. Well done. Good job, gentlemen. Thank you for joining me for another podcast. Couldn't do it without you two. That's going to wrap it up. We'll be back at some point. Sounds like news will continue to develop at a rapid pace. So we'll try and get back together to give you our thoughts and analysis. But that's Shotgun. That's Chris. I'm Keely. We'll see y'all next time. Wear a mask.
It's the NFL offseason, but on Pick 6, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, the football season never stops. Host Will Brinson, John Breach, and Tyler Sullivan are joined by analysts like Brady Quinn, Leslie Ducible, Katie Mox, and R.J. White to keep you in the loop on everything happening around the league. Whether it's free agents signing with new teams, the all-important NFL draft, or schedule release day, Pick 6 has you covered. As the face of the league changes with every team move and player pickup this spring, Pick 6 is a must Listen, download, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and anywhere podcasts are found.